it, it occurs to me that Christians have become a lot like, like drummers in worship services, um, seen but seldom heard. Sir, what is your name? Clay. Clay, thank you for what you do. Can I get that? Can I get this lectern? Right here. Excuse me. Thank you. Good morning. It's a delight for me to be with you uh, this morning, and we're talking about uh, the very difficult subject of Old Testament violence. And while I have a little bit of fun with Clay, there's a uh, there's a lot of truth to the fact that Christians are being marginalized in our society in a really big way. And it's because of things like what you just saw. That was Peter Singer, who is a bioethicist at Princeton University, arguably the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 20th century and beyond, the father of the animal rights movement, published a book called Animal Liberation in 1975. And here he is in one of our debates... Um, discrediting or endeavoring to discredit the whole of the Christian faith on the basis of what? Old Testament violence. He says, look at this. These people claim to be about grace. They claim to be about justice. They claim to be about mercy. And listen to this passage. Let me read to you what their book um, is all about. Now, maybe some of you haven't thought about this subject um, very much. Perhaps others of you have. When I was a student in high school, I was a young believer and uh, was reading through the Bible for the first time. I, my Bible teacher had assigned it to me, and, um, and I was working my way from Genesis all the way through. You know, you know the drill. And I came to passages like this, and I was really struggling to understand, what am I to make, how am I to make sense of this? And I recall going to my Bible teacher, who, by the way, was a very good man, but who was accustomed to talking to people who agreed with him and accepted his basic paradigm. And he said, well, Larry, such is the justice of God. And that was the end of the conversation. Now, while theologically correct, it was a less than fulfilling answer for me as it related to the topic. And some of you will recall, last time that I preached here, I made reference to, we were in the middle of it at the time, um, some research that we were doing that was eventually published in an article that I wrote for The Atlantic called Listening to Young Atheists. For more than a year, we listened to students all across the United States uh, talking about what it was that they didn't find particularly compelling about the Christian faith. And among the issues that came up frequently violence, biblical violence, came up quite a lot. And no doubt it'll come up again next year when I debate atheist Michael Shermer. They love this particular topic, and we realized at Fixed Point Foundation that this was an issue that we needed to address because it is a barrier to faith for many. They find it difficult to believe in the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ because of passages like this and because of our failure, yours and mine, to speak to these kinds of issues. And so we, we decided at Fixed Point that what we would do is tap into the 
uh, to the fabulous resources that we have around us here in Birmingham, Alabama and beyond, and we invited a number of pastors. I can say that Danny wasn't there, which will prove to be good, as you'll see, and theologians, and we brought them together. We sent them in advance lists of various passages we wanted them to read, and we said, look, no one leaves the room. We'll cater in however many meals are necessary, but no one leaves the room until we come up with some compelling responses to things like what you just saw. What are we to say in response to to things like this? We're doing a fairly poor job of addressing this issue. And unfortunately, the answers were just as uh, um, disappointing as the answers that I had received as a high school student, such as the righteousness of God. God is holy and just. Again, I get it. But you're assuming that you're talking to people who, A, believe in your God and who understand the very language that you're using. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 46, and you experts in the law, in other words, you preachers and teachers and theologians, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. What Jesus is getting at in that passage is that you and I have a responsibility to ease the burdens of the people around us, people who are struggling with issues like this. And the way we do that is by ourselves being good students of the Word, rightly dividing it, understanding it, and being able to bring it down to a level that they can understand the issue. Unfortunately, we often do very little to help people uh, with their burdens, Uh, And part of this is due to the fact that we we kind of, within the Christian community, particularly here in the South, in the Christian subculture, where you you can spend your whole life not rubbing elbows with unbelievers, we've kind of developed our own language. Bless his heart. I think he's backsliding. I think I saw him drink. Yeah, but... In moderation. I just wasn't seeing much fruit. He's going down a slippery slope. How's your heart, man? How's your heart? I'm just such a words guy. It was a total God thing. I'm blessed. I've been working on my testimony. Is that secular music? We're opening with a secular song tonight. Wait, is this a secular song? Isn't she secular? Which station's The Fish? 104.3 The Fish. Safe for the whole family. You know he's a believer. I think he's saved. I just pray you'd give him traveling mercies. Mm. Pray for all Tyler's unspokens. Mm. Echo that. Just really like to echo... Tyler's prayer, Father. I just, I echo that echo of my echo of his echo. I really feel like I'm being released from this, you know? I'm trying to be relevant. I'm just trying to be in the world, not of it. Hey, do you want to join our small group? You want to join my D group? You want to join my cell group? Community group? Access group? Accountability group? Acts 27 group? Dude, he brought it. He brought the word. That service last night rocked me. They're pretty purpose-driven. Yeah, it's seeker. Don't they do seeker service there? I feel like he's gotten really watered down. I don't feel like he really teaches the word. There's not enough meat, you know? Are they non-to-non? We have a great Wednesday night supper. Let's invite some dudes over and fellowship tonight. We're going to have a sweet time of fellowshipping tonight. Dude, we had the sickest fellowship last night. We're going to extreme. Velocity. Ignite. Yeah, I'm going to ignite. The edge. The dive. The bridge. The ramp. Fire. Courageous. Passion. Echo. Reverb. Noise. Velocity. Drive. Elevate. Radiate. 722. 635. 419. Orange. Blue. Yellow. Green. Clear. Neon. Catalyst conference this year. I don't do that because I feel like it ruins my witness. 
been struggling with that. I'm really wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with a doubt. I need someone to hold me accountable. I'm really trying to be intentional with her. I'm pursuing her for sure. I'm trying to guard her heart. Guard her heart though, bro. Will you hold me accountable to that? Now proof that Christians have their own language is every one of you understood exactly what they were talking about. You understood exactly what they're talking about. Unfortunately, sometimes people outside of the Christian faith don't always know what we're talking about. Uh, You know, it's difficult enough to communicate when you're talking to people who share your language. I recall being in Turkey some years ago visiting missionaries, and uh, we're driving through the city, I think it was Ankara, and um, uh, some guys in this group that I was with wanted to buy for their wives uh, a, a, a Turkish carpet that's called a kilim, but a bunch of rednecks, we just called it kill them. Just kill them. And these missionaries, their son is sitting on my lap, and I suppose he's, I don't know, four or five years old, and I'm bouncing him up and down. I kind of sort of listening to him as he's telling me about um, his two cats, Polly and Dolly. And he's going on about how he loves Polly and Dolly and how wonderful Polly and Dolly are when I look over and I see a sign and I'm kind of going, yeah, great. And I say, hey, kill them. I saw a sign for this carpet. Hey, kill them. And Timmy looks up and he goes, Polly and Dolly, kill them. No. Come on, people, that was funny. That's one of my best stories. It's difficult to be understood even when we speak the same language. And unfortunately, it is because we don't often know the Bible particularly well. But I'll tell you something that really brought this issue home for me. Some very dear friends of my wife and I, Phil and Julie, a man who had had a tremendous impact upon my own faith, Um, a leader in the church, uh, a guy who I had been in an accountability group with, um, one of my very best friends. Um, We're going to have dinner together, and it's been quite a while since we've seen each other because we no longer live in the same community, and um, she is texting me that I need to talk to her husband about something. And she's one of those people, if you know Julie, she's one of those people who texts with exclamations and smiley faces continually. I I mean, can you imagine talking to her? You need to talk to Phil. He's having a crisis of faith. He's having a problem with Old Testament violence. She says, look, he's having a really difficult time understanding um, certain aspects of Scripture, and unfortunately, it's causing him to have a crisis of faith. Of faith. We get together, we have dinner, we're talking about all kinds of things, the kids, football, etc., so forth, and um, towards the end of the evening, you know, you reach that point where sort of wrap-up time, and I'm sitting on the edge of, of my chair, I've got my keys, and I'm getting ready to go, the wives are talking to each other just a little bit, and, um, and I say, so, you know, I, I asked this, you know, kind of a generic question, somewhat insincerely, honestly, what's the Lord doing in your life? And Phil sits back in his chair, and I realize, oh no. 
and he says, well, I'm not sure that I really believe it anymore. I said, believe what? He says, I'm not really sure that I believe the Bible anymore. And I couldn't believe it. I could think of so many things I'd prefer that he had told me. But he wasn't sure that he believed the Bible anymore. And then he went to Judges chapter 11 and the story of Jephthah, one of the judges, and the story of him sacrificing his daughter. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. But, but before this, the, the issue of Old Testament violence had been kind of personal for me insofar as as a student at one point it had been an issue that I had struggled with. Um, but it also been kind of academic. We're dealing with a lot of different students and guys like Singer, who you saw, and numerous others. But this made it deeply, deeply personal. It was the difference between C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. If you know the, anything about Lewis's writing, The Problem of Pain is a book that he wrote from a fairly academic point of view. Here's pain. Let me explain it to you. Here's what the Scripture has to say. Any questions? A grief observed is while he's watching his wife die. It's a, it's a huge difference between the problem of pain and a grief observed. And for me, the issue very quickly was no longer an academic question. And it forced me like nothing else ever had into studying what Scripture was saying on this. Now, before we look at Judges 11, there's some basic principles that you need to bear in mind in understanding Old Testament violence. Uh, and, and honestly, we could make the issue, you know, the New Testament as well, as we could go to Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. So it's not simply uh, um, confined to the Old Testament, but generally speaking, um, this, it's these passages in the Old Testament that cause so many of you to be a little nervous about the Old Testament. It's why so many people, including believers, think the God of the Old Testament is not quite as user-friendly as the God in the New Testament. So, what are some principles to help us understand Old Testament violence? First of all, you must understand that there are types of violence in Scripture, categories of it. The first that I would give you is that which is God-ordained. That which is God-ordained. The flood in Genesis chapter 6, um, Exodus chapter 12, and the killing of the Egyptian firstborn, which, by the way, was a reprisal for Exodus chapter 1 in the killing of the Hebrew male children. Just worth bearing in mind. But in any case, you have violence that is ordained by God in Scripture, where he says it's a righteous thing to do. Then there's violence in Scripture that is simply being reported. Bear in mind that 12 books of the Old Testament are histories, and they're reporting to you things that happened. A report does not mean that God says this was a good thing. In many instances, quite the opposite indicating just how foul um, these people really were. Um, the rape of Tamar in 2 Samuel uh, 13, the dismemberment of the concubine in Judges 19, these are not things that God told people to do, but they are things that people did nonetheless. And so it's very important as we wade into a topic like this that we understand the distinction 
between that which God has ordained and that which is simply being reported in Scripture. Very important. The next principle for you to understand uh, about violence in Scripture is that context is essential. Context is utterly essential. Suppose I were to tell you a story about a man who is at home watching television with his wife and his grandchildren when some people burst in upon him, shoot him in the head, shoot his wife, and frighten the children who are all seeing all of this. You might say to me, Larry, there's nothing, nothing that can justify anything like that. To which I would say to you, well, hold on just a minute. The man we're talking about was Osama bin Laden. It was SEAL Team 6. For you to understand what happened in that, that home that night, there's a whole history going back well before 9-11 that you have to understand in order to understand what happened that fateful night. Or suppose you didn't know anything, anything at all about World War II, and this was your portal into that uh, 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 traumatic event. I hardly thought about what I saw, but I just kept on walking. It was when I crossed the river, though, that I really seemed to step into hell. The stench of the dead bodies was already overpowering in the heat of the midsummer sun. It was awful. Most people had been wearing light summer shirts that morning, but most of the dead were bare-chested and many were completely naked, perhaps because their clothes had been burned off of them. The parts of the body that the, the bodies that had been exposed to the flash had suffered great burns and the skin was turning purple and trailing from their bodies. Now, that's a, that's a terrible, terrible scene. If you know nothing about World War II, and this is, this is your portal into those events of 1933 to 1945, you would say, Larry, nothing can justify that. And I would say to you, the dropping of the atomic bombs was necessary. They had been warned that such a weapon would be used against them if they, they did not surrender unconditionally. And furthermore, they had killed millions of Chinese. There were the Korean comfort women. There was the Bataan Death March. There was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, so on and so forth. Indeed, after the dropping of the first bomb, leaflets were dropped all over Japan saying, surrender or we'll do it again. And it did happen again. Context is extremely important in understanding any parts of Scripture, but particularly when you're getting to these kinds of controversial stories. Peter Singer would have you believe that the Midianite women in Numbers 31 were eating funnel cakes with their children at the mall when the uh, Israelis, uh, the Israelites, burst in upon them. But he very conveniently overlooks an incident some six chapters earlier at Peor. What happened at Peor? The people of Israel were lured, lured into uh, um, the worship of a deity that demanded human sacrifice and sexual immorality. The people of Israel were killing their own children on the altars of these deities. 
And the Lord had warned them that he would punish them if they did not relent. But they didn't. And so here you have this passage where um, Moses comes upon the people of Israel who have spared these women that Moses is saying they are a national security risk. Spare the virgins. Now he would tell you that they spared them. Hey, spare the virgins for yourself is kind of the way he's, he puts it. That wasn't the context of the story. How do we know the ones who aren't guilty? They'll be virgins. And it'll be obvious because in the ancient Near East, women signified their um, virginity by what they wore. It might be some kind of outer adornment. It might be their clothing. It might be their hair. Something that indicated that. And he says, spare them. They're guilty. And my point isn't that you'll necessarily like these passages. And we'll come to that towards the end. But it is important that you nonetheless understand that there is a context to these stories. Now, obviously we can't go through every passage like this in Scripture, but let's go to Judges chapter 11. This is a hard story. Now, to set this up just a little bit, the nation of Israel, the book of Judges, tells us that this was a time, Judges chapter 17, tells us that this was a time where there were no kings in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a time where they had rejected effectively the Lord's leadership. Um, They pursued uh, Baal worship of the type that we see in Numbers 25. Um, They were doing all sorts of things that were contrary to God and to his law and to his instruction. And from time to time, he would raise up a judge, that is to say a leader, who would would, uh, lead them into battle against against their enemies. And in Judges chapter 11, we find out, we won't read the whole passage, but in Judges chapter 11, we find in the opening of that chapter uh, quite a lot about Jephthah, who he was. He was the son of a prostitute. He was raised in a region that was permeated with pagan rituals of uh, of the tribes that they mingled with, again, against God's command. They were not to intermingle with these Uh, pagan tribes, but they did it anyway. Jephthah was a great warrior. Verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us that. He was a a mercenary, might be the term that we would use today. This was a guy who might sell his services um, to other people, and he'd eventually do this um, with the people of Israel. Verse 3 tells us that he surrounded himself with worthless fellows, So this was not a man who had surrounded himself with wise and godly counsel. And then we discover that he was driven out from among the people of Israel. Uh, They didn't want him. They told him to go away. But then the people of Israel find themselves in a military crisis. And they come back and they say, would you be our leader? This is a guy that uh, they've decided, you know, so this, is, this is what you see all the time. You know, Alabama and Auburn would very quickly offer this man a scholarship. Come and play for us. Play on our team. Because they knew that he was a great warrior. 
they knew that he was a great mercenary. And what happens after that? Judges chapter 11, beginning with verse 29, tells us this. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So what happens is he goes out against the Ammonites, but before he does so, he says, whatever comes out of my tent, I'm going to give to the Lord. Now, we'll notice that the Lord didn't tell him to do that. There was no bargain that he had to make. He did not have to buy God's favor. But nonetheless, this is what he says. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. And she was his child. Beside her, his, her, his only child, beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do according to me to what has uh, gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now, what are we to make of a story like this? Here is a man who is a judge of Israel, who has been recruited, as it were, to be the military leader of the people of Israel, And before he goes into battle, he makes this rash vow in which he says, whatever comes out of the tent, I will offer as a burnt offering unto the Lord. He goes into battle, he has great victory, and he comes out, and who comes out of the tent but his daughter? Now, it's not clear what he thought was going to come out of the tent, Maybe he thought it was going to be an animal. Maybe he thought it was going to be his mother-in-law. I don't know. He, it's, never, it's never really clear what he was thinking. But some critics have seized upon the verse that begins this passage, which says, the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. In other words, was he in the Spirit of the Lord when he made this vow? Well, let's look at other passages that speak to the Spirit of the Lord within the context of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3, verse 10. 
The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan uh, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Judges chapter 6, verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. Judges 14, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, that is Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces. Judges 14, verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, again, Samson, and although, uh, excuse me, uh, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men. Judges chapter 15, verse 14, again, Samson, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax. Uh, Now, what do you see as a consistent theme in those passages? when it speaks of the Spirit of the Lord, is it telling us that when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him that he received godliness, that he received wisdom, that he received the power of prophecy? The context of those passages tell us that these men were given strength and victory in battle. We only have to look back at the theme of Judges, which tells us that people did what was right in their own eyes. Indeed, Judges chapter 17 tells us that God was their judge and their leader throughout all of it. Part of the point of Judges is to tell us, to demonstrate to us, how powerfully God worked through a godless people. God was giving military victory. Indeed, after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, he goes to Delilah. So I don't think that we can take that to mean that everything, every verse that comes after that simply means that all of it was sanctioned by God. Well, what of the rash vow? Why did he do it? You've all either played football or watched it. And you can see guys getting in the huddle. You know who was quite famous for this? Um, suddenly his name's gone straight out of my head. The linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens who just retired. What's his name? Ray Lewis, who loved to come out and stomp and, you know, make these kinds of gestures. And they'd get all the guys in a circle and they'd butt heads and they would beat their chests and they would do these kinds of things to get themselves ready, as it were, for battle. You could kind of picture that sort of scene with Jephthah, Jephthah and his men. And Jephthah in, the, in the, the throes of all of this says, Men, whatever comes out of that tent, I will give to the Lord. One almost gets the sense that it was a bit of arrogance and pride that led him to do something like this. He wanted to impress upon them, perhaps, his own piety. But did God command it? No, quite the opposite. The Lord speaks against human sacrifice quite strongly, in fact, calling it an abomination. Leviticus chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 23, all condemned human sacrifice all condemned it, not to mention the Ten Commandments themselves. In spite of what Jephthah says in verse 35, where he says to his daughter, I'm sorry, 
darn, I didn't know you were going to come out. But unfortunately, I've made the vow and I can't take it back. I've made the vow and I can't take it back. That's what he says. But Jephthah is wrong. He could take it back. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, made provision for people who did stupid things like what Jephthah did. The Lord in his grace and in his mercy and in his infinite wisdom, knowing man's infinite capacity for stupidity, made it possible for people who did things like this to reverse it. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, read this. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord uh, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Did you say something you regretted? Have you ever done that? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I will assume that you have. How many times have we, in the midst of something like this, talked really big and said we're going to do things that either A, we shouldn't do, or B, simply cannot do. And this is the case of Jephthah. But either Jephthah was too proud to reverse it for fear, perhaps, of losing face in front of his men, or a very good possibility, he just didn't know the word that the Lord condemns human sacrifice which, by the way, why do you suppose human sacrifice would be something that would come to his mind in the first place? Is it possible that he had been so heavily influenced by the pagans around him that he went towards this? It's a warning, I think, to all of us. We are to be in the world and not of it. Jephthah was in it and of it. Another possibility is, you know, that, that, that Jephthah was just arrogant. Whatever the case may be, the Lord did not condone it. If, and I emphasize the if, if Jephthah did in fact kill and actually burn his daughter as a sacrifice. Now, there are linguistic reasons that I won't go into, uh, and the Hebrew scholars will tell you there are reasons to believe that what he did was actually consecrate his daughter to um, the temple. And hence the reason, they would argue, that, that his daughter does not mourn her life. What does she mourn? Her virginity. Hence the reason that throughout the passage there's this emphasis upon the fact that she was, she was his only child. Besides her, he had no other child, neither son nor daughter. And the emphasis upon her virginity, because to be consecrated to the, the temple meant that she would remain a virgin for the rest of her life. And why would he mourn that? Because Jephthah, like so many of the other judges, hoped to establish a monarchy. And she was his only hope. And he tears his clothes, 
realizing what he has done. Regardless, either way, it's obvious that God is not responsible for what happens in Judges chapter 11. So, coming back to the principles that I gave you at the beginning of this message, what category of violence does this fall into? God-ordained or reported by Scripture? Reported. It's pretty obvious God did not order him to do whatever it was that he did. So God is not responsible for this. Something else for us to bear in mind as it relates to this particular issue is a lot of these complaints, and you could hear it in Singer, you can hear it in numerous others, they all kind of carry with them the implicit notion that somehow man is more merciful than God. That man would do it differently and do it better. I would never do anything like that. There's a Latin maxim that goes, homo homini lupus est. Man is wolf unto man. Man is wolf unto man, meaning man knows no mercy towards his own species. Ladies and gentlemen, in the 20th century alone, men killed well in excess of 100 million of his own species. man more merciful than God? In 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, David says this. To me, it's very powerful. David said to Gad, Gad, not God, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. Let me be judged by him. His anger knows an end. But do not let me fall into the hands of men, for they know no mercy. Finally, I close with this. And this will be very hard for many of you to process what I'm going to say. You must dispense with your cozy notions of who God is. He is not a cosmic Santa Claus, nor is he a a, a tyrant and a butcher, as critics like this would have you believe. But the church in America, and I may be stepping on toes when I say this, has been feminized. And with it has come the feminizing of the character of God. And ladies and gentlemen, it simply will not do. It does not fit with the biblical record of who he is. I mean, in part, I find all these expressions of mock outrage at violence in Scripture really annoying. <laughs> Right now, ladies and gentlemen, someone is dying for your freedom. Someone is dying for it. Do you really not want to know how the sausage is made? This is how freedom is preserved. And let us not also forget 
that perhaps the greatest act in vi- of, of violence in Scripture was necessary for your salvation. If it's necessary to preserve your physical freedom in this world, is it so hard to understand that it might be necessary to preserve and to secure your freedom in the next world? Last week, Danny was speaking on the mighty men. You know, those guys didn't earn that title because they were whack-a-mole champs at Chuck E. Cheese. I've grown tired of apologizing for being a Christian and for the God of Scripture who it occurs to me, as I was, even as I was preparing for this, I was thinking to myself, Lord, why did you include stuff like this? Okay, I get it. It was necessary to do what you did with the Midianite women. But I mean, really? Did you have to put that in there? It makes my job way, way harder. And it was like I could hear the Spirit saying, Larry, deal with it. This is who I am. Know who I am. It's part of the character of God because while He is a God of mercy... And grace, he is also a God of justice. And just as leaflets were dropped all over Japan, the Lord sent his prophets out to warn the people of Israel that these things were coming. Joel chapter 2 tells us, the prophet there says, even as the hammer is about to fall, the prophet there says, even now, even now, if you relent and turn from your wickedness, he will show you mercy. I close with this passage from C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. It's in the silver chair, and I think it summarizes the situation quite well. If you're not familiar with that series, um, Aslan the lion represents um, Christ, and we all of his children. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, She realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
There is no other stream, said the lion. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no other stream. There's no other stream of salvation. There's no other stream of grace. There's no other stream of eternal life. You and I have the great privilege of serving a God who is not simply a God of justice. We would all be in trouble. But he is also a God of grace and mercy, and he invites you, offers you, that even now, if you turn away from your sin and you repent of it, that he will extend to you eternal life. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather together in your house to consider your word in very difficult passages like this. And yet, Father, these are, these are passages that you have included in the text and that you want us to, uh, to grapple with and to come to understand that sometimes our notions of who you are do not fit with the biblical account. Father, I pray that there are any here who do not know you, that your spirit would touch them, would draw them, that wherever they are, that they would pray a prayer of repentance and ask for you to come into their heart and into their lives. Father, we're very grateful for the ministry of Shades Mountain Baptist Church. We pray that you would bless it and that you'd help it to have an enormous impact upon this community, upon this state, this country, and indeed the very world. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.